Amen. If you go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me. We're continuing in Matthew. You might notice the picture on the screen is different, uh, but we're still trucking along in the gospel of Matthew. Um, but we're going to slow down just a little bit over the next three chapters of Matthew. Um, this chunk of Matthew is probably, um, within the Gospel of Matthew, probably the most well-known three-chapter chunk, um, and arguably might be the best well-known three-chapter chunk in Scripture, um, because it is in Matthew 5 through 7 that we find the Sermon on the Mount, but in this next, in just the, the next 11 verses, Matthew 5, 1 through 11, uh, what's called the Beatitudes. Um, but the Sermon on the Mount is, I want to be, I guess, kind of careful how I say this, but the, Matthew 5 through 7 is not hotly contested by people who don't like Jesus and faith in him alone. It is widely accepted as this is the part of Jesus that, that everybody should like because it's the part where Jesus gives his, uh, if we take it away from the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's Jesus' ethical teachings. And this is the chunk of scripture, these three chapter chunk of Matthew is where um, a world that doesn't know Jesus or doesn't accept Jesus as the eternal son of God they can look at Jesus and say, well, I like that guy. I like that Jesus that's a really good teacher. Uh, in fact, the, the next three chapters of Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7, uh, were really formative for Gandhi in his uh, pacifism and, and peaceful nonviolence. Like he, he was like, I, I can get on board with this Jesus. But he, he rejected everything else that Scripture teaches about Jesus. And so uh, even when you, when you talk to people, the expectation of who Jesus is is rooted in a lot of ways in Matthew 5 through 7 and divorced from the rest of Scripture that speaks about who Jesus is at large. Um, but that doesn't mitigate or that doesn't take away from the fact that this is God's inspired word. This is Jesus teaching his disciples, and it is fundamental to an understanding of the kingdom of heaven. So if we think about at large that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is a theme that, that is pervasive across Matthew because Jesus is the king who comes to initiate God's kingdom, right? He's, he, he, he's, he, he just started in chapter 4 preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and it is imminently coming. And so Jesus as this initiator, this king who brings in a new kingdom, he is going to draw his, his disciples primarily aside and begin to teach them what his kingdom is about and how his kingdom operates and how his kingdom is different than every other kingdom. Uh, and it's, it's, for me, it, it follows in a kind of a strange manner in, in, in the way that we would draw things up. Because when we come into Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has been in, at the tail end of Matthew chapter 4. We saw people coming from all over Israel to come and observe and to hear what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was teaching. Right? People from all over the area come to him. And what is common in Jesus and his ministry is that rather than building on and capitalizing on great numbers of crowds and people coming to him, he withdraws. And he calls his disciples away to recalibrate and make sure that they understand what they are to be about. Uh, and in so doing, he also is telling you and I what we are to be about. 
So the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, the, the smaller chunk that we're in for the next uh, 10, 10-ish weeks is called the Beatitudes. You probably have that uh, in, a, in a chapter heading or a subheading within the body of your Bible uh, before verse 2. Um, Beatitudes is not a word that's uh, found in Scripture. Like, oh, what are the Beatitudes outside of this subheading? That comes from the Latin word for blessed, blessed are. So um, the Bible originally written Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New Testament, translated into Latin and used in Latin for a long time. And so the word Beatitudes just comes from that Latin translation, blessed are, which is the first two words of, of if you look in this chunk of scripture, Jesus is going to say this eight times, blessed are, and he's going to fill in the blanks. And so each week we're just going to take one of these, uh, one of these one verse things and break it down a little bit. Uh, so with that, we're, we're slowing down a little bit. Uh, you might be used to us taking a chapter at a time or a half a chapter at a time, and for the next uh, few weeks, we're taking one verse at a time. Uh, you didn't think I could do it. I'm not sure if I can do it. We'll find out. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, I just mentioned this at the beginning or into chapter 4. Jesus starts his ministry, initiates his ministry in the area of Capernaum, which is up by the Sea of Galilee. He had called disciples to himself. Last week we saw his ministry looks like he's, he's uh, teaching in synagogues, he's preaching the message of the kingdom, and he's doing these massive numbers of healings where people are coming to him with all kinds of physical ailments, spiritual ailments, and he is healing them, ushering in his kingdom. And as all of Israel is coming to see him, he sees the crowds and goes up into the hill country. Uh, now, I mentioned this just a little bit a couple minutes ago, but how much different is that than us? If we did an event and it like people showed up, doors busting down, would it be our next step to say, hey, we're not going to gather next week. We're going to take a week off. Like, you're crazy, right? Think about it. If you had a grand opening just for a business, nothing, nothing to do spiritually, you started a business and people flooded through the doors and the first week was like, blew your expectations of what that business would do. Would you then say, hey, we're going to take three weeks, regroup, and we'll come back and see you? You'd be like, no, that's insane, right? You'd be like, how can we capitalize on this and continue to build it bigger and better and stronger and faster and just blow our expectations even farther out of the water? Now, we would love to say that we would never do that about ministry or people coming to, to a ministry activity, but if, if we started some community initiative, right, and people were busting down the doors to get there every week, how many of you would say, I think we need to stop doing this for a little bit? No, it's completely the other way, right? It's like, well, the numbers are kind of dwindling or it's, it's petering out. Like, let's, let's pull back, regroup, and start something fresh, right? Jesus already, like, modeling to his disciples, like, you can just imagine, like, where are we going? We're going to the hills? We're withdrawing? We're not staying here where all of these people are coming from all over our country to see you? Like, while you're talking about initiating a kingdom, people are coming to see what this kingdom is about, and now we're going up on a hill? Which is fascinating that we don't get that from the disciples. That's just me just speculating. 
But you notice that Jesus, throughout his ministry, throughout the Gospels, you'll notice this about Jesus. This is often the case with Jesus. Jesus often, in, 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 rather than playing to the favor of the crowds, he withdraws either one for time alone, praying just him and the Father, or two, he pulls away and gives focused time to his disciples, to this smaller group of people. And so right here, the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we already start to see this differentiation between crowds and disciples. There's a, differenti- there's a difference that's drawn between those that are just merely interested in what Jesus is or who Jesus is and what he is doing and those who are committed to following him. And you think about the disciples previously, last week in, in chapter 4, when Jesus called Peter, James, John, and Andrew, he called them to leave what they were doing. They were all fishermen. Rather, two of them, Peter and Andrew, were, were casting nets, and he says, hey, why don't you leave your nets, come follow me. They dropped their nets and immediately followed Jesus. James and John are two other fishermen. They fish with their dad, Zebedee, which is a really cool name. They're fishing with their dad, and they're, they're in the boat with Zebedee, mending the nets, and Jesus says, hey, come follow me. And immediately, it says, they dropped their nets, left them, left their dad, left the business, and followed Jesus. And what we could, we could broadly say, that the crowds are typically marked by eagerness to hear and observe what Jesus teaches and, to, and what Jesus does. They're excited by signs of the kingdom, but they're fickle and circumstance-based. So, right, they get really excited about Jesus' miracles, but then they immediately begin to go, when are you going to do another one? That was cool. When are you going to do another one? And his disciples, typically, uh, there, there's, a, there's a, a part in John where uh, a bunch of his disciples leave him too, but his di- disciples typically leave everything to follow Jesus in spite of circumstances. Like They're committed for the long haul to follow where he goes. They're not always uh, with him only when it is glamorous. Right? When Jesus talks to, uh, about uh, the Son of Man not having anywhere to lay his head, and they say, like, well, what about us? Like, we've given up everything to follow you. Right? Uh, the crowds have not been marked by necessarily giving up everything to follow. They might be marked up by going out of their way to see him momentarily. They experience part of who he is, but it, in, in a broad sense, the crowds would be those that, that see what he does and yet remain relatively unchanged by the encounter, spiritually at least. His disciples, uh, we think about the disciples, it often focuses on the 12. At the end of his ministry, after his uh, death, burial, and resurrection, he'll have 120 in the upper room. Uh, they share in his ministry so they're not just, uh, they don't just experience the, the blessing of his ministry. They are participants in it. They're the ones that are helping pass out the bread and the fish. They're the ones that are called to go and prepare something for him. They're also ones that at times are sent out with Jesus' authority to go into places that Jesus is about to go himself. But they're sharing in the ministry and they're responsible or will be responsible for taking the good news of who Jesus is and sharing the gospel of a resurrected Jesus to the world. So there's a buy-in difference, there's a commitment difference, but then we also see that they are the disciples are given 
instruction from Jesus that the crowds often don't receive. Jesus will speak to the crowds in parables, but to his disciples he'll explain what the parable means. Jesus will, uh, will speak broadly to the crowds, but then you'll see him pull aside the disciples and explain something in more depth. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, you notice in verse 1 that it's centered around, it's primarily aimed at his disciples. So for these guys who are going to share in his ministry, these guys who are going to be given his authority to go and take the message of his kingdom everywhere they go, that kind of helps us frame that he is now saying this is what the kingdom looks like. Which is probably an important thing. Think about employee orientation. This is what the business is about. This is how you do your work in this business, right? Like this is kind of Jesus saying, you're my disciples. This is what, my, this is what being my disciples means. This is what my kingdom is all about. Which is a really gracious thing of how Jesus deals with his disciples because they often get it wrong. They begin to debate with Jesus about how he is ushering in his kingdom. Your kingdom shouldn't be this way. Right? And he, he rebukes and he corrects them. Hey, when you bring your kingdom in, can I have this special seat next to you? Right? They, they, get, they get concerned about things that are not necessarily kingdom business. And Jesus, every time, recalibrates them. But when you, if I were to tell you, or if you were to hear somebody say, this is how you can know that you would be blessed of God, would your ears pick up just a little bit? And maybe in the world that we live in, we go, I would get really skeptical really fast. But here in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 11, Jesus himself is telling his disciples, this is who is blessed. Now, that ought to create just a little bit of like, okay, what, lean in a little bit more. Who is blessed? What do I have to do? What does somebody do? And the first thing that we might would have to, to ask is, what does it even mean to be blessed? Because a wrong understanding of blessing would lead us to a wrong motive for what we're looking to get from Jesus' word this morning at all. Does being blessed simply mean to be happy? Does it mean to be prosperous? Does it mean that I found a close parking spot in Rose Hours on an icy day? Blessed! You're right, like I'm, that, gets a, that gets a social media post. I am so blessed. Close parking spot. Coffee is fresh at McDonald's. I am blessed. Cracked a bunch of eggs, none of them were rotten. I'm blessed. Like, this is like everything is going my way. Is that really like, is it just a state of well being? And I think what we see in this is rather than it being focused on me feeling complete and happy and joyful and, and whatever homeostasis level is completed, it is actually instead, what does it mean for somebody to have or receive God's approval? What does it mean to be living in light of God, God having his stamp of approval on a person's life? Right? So, which is also, we would probably want to know, what do I have to do to do that? What do I have to do in order to know that God is pleased with my life? What do I have to do to know that God, at the end of things, and when I stand before him, he says, okay, good job. Rather than navigating through life going, I hope so. I hope he's okay with this. I'm doing my best, and I think that's going to be enough for him. Right? Jesus is saying, this is what it means. This is how you would know that you have, have or have, are receiving in anticipation God's approval. So then the Beatitudes function 
as what it means to live life in light of the kingdom of heaven, right? So what does it mean to be a participant in the kingdom of heaven? To be one who is approved, who has right standing in the kingdom of heaven. If Jesus is initiating a new kingdom, what does it take to have my citizenship in it? Right? Like, how do I know that I am a part of this new kingdom and not just looking at a kingdom from the outside? That kind of helps us think about what we are looking at from this. And then the Sermon on the Mount as a whole then says, how do we function within this new kingdom as citizens of it? What, like, what do God's people, what are they supposed to look like? What is a life that is approved by God or has a, the approval of God upon it? And the first thing that we would see, and it would, it's kind of surprising, is blessed or approved are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you might want to just add, if you're taking notes or if you're thinking about this, when it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, you might would say, for theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. They have an exclusive, like it's exclusively given to this chunk of people. And the first criteria or the first thing that Jesus says his kingdom is about or those that are part of his kingdom has to be true of them is that they are poor in spirit. Yeah, what does that mean? The word poor throughout Scripture is primarily, and our use of poor is primarily financial, economical. Right? To, to, to be poor is to not have money. And, and to add some emphasis to this, in Scripture, the idea of poor is to be, it is primarily economic and it is primarily financial, but it is to the degree that someone is reduced to begging. So it's not just, it's so, so we might would say, well, poor is, is what I am, all right? It's like, man, what I am is paycheck to paycheck. That's poor, right? There's, there's, not, there's not a bunch of money in the bank. I'm poor, like Compared to others, most of us in the room, we're, we're poor in comparison to somebody, right? Uh, you go, I'm not that poor. Like Warren Buffett says, you poor, right? Bill Gates says, you're silly. You got to play money, right? You're, you're. But most of us are probably not poor to the point of being reduced to begging for our livelihood. We're not reduced to a place where we just don't have anything. Now, I want to be careful on this because this is, this is one of the strains that, it, that the world would say, this is obviously the gospel. Taking care of poor people, that's the gospel. Right? And, and, and this is where the Sermon on the Mount gets turned a lot, is it's a social gospel. Jesus says, take care of oppressed or poor people. But Jesus qualifies and he says, poor in spirit. He's not just talking about your way into the kingdom is to be destitute and poor financially. Then you're in. You know. That's not what he says. But he does say the way into the kingdom or the approval into the kingdom is built off of or the expectation is that those who inherit the kingdom are poor in spirit. You know, okay, so what does that mean? That, that we would probably want to know what that means if, if Jesus says, this is who is blessed and this is who the kingdom belongs to. How do I know if that's me? How do I know if that's not me? And I want to start with two things that, that poor in spirit is not. So being poor in spirit, first of all, is not false humility. 
And false humility is where we assume a self-debasing, where we assume a posture of lowliness in order that somebody else will tell us how marvelous we are. Right? So it's assuming a lower place that you can come out and say, oh, go pick up. You're not that bad. You, in fact, you're wonderful. You're so good at all the things that you do. Right? That's false humility, where it's, it's humility that is employed for the sake of getting somebody else's attention. So it's not just going, see, God, I'm groveling, I'm groveling, I'm so poor in spirit, so now you can approve me. Right? It's not that. It is also, so it, it's not false humility, and kind of tying right off of that is it is not self-seeking. Like, everybody, look how selfless I am. Look at me. Look at me. Do so you see how humble I am? Do you see how poor in spirit I am? Just whew, all the things that I'm doing, just so poor in spirit, so humble. There's nobody as humble as I am. Catch that, right? So what is it then? If it's not false humility, it's not self-seeking, it's not trying to debase ourselves in order to lay a hold of what God says is ours, like trying to put on a face in order to, to like hoodwink him into blessing, then we're left with an idea that it is a, the functional realization of spiritual inability. It is the functional realization, like where I come to an actual realization in and of myself that I am spiritually incapable, unable to do what a holy God tells me I am to do. It is a place of realizing that, that there is nothing I bring to the table that God would say, okay, you're a part of the kingdom because you can do that. You have that skill? Okay, you come in. You have those possessions? Okay, you can come in. This is part of your personality? All right, you're in. The functional realization that there is nothing that I can offer There is nothing that I can do, and I am left in a place of asking and prevailing upon the grace of another for everything that I do have. Now, where we would ask for that help and that grace is all of the difference. But I want to compare before we get there to Revelation 3. It's a picture of this. This is a, maybe an after, after salvation picture of this. But I think it captures the heart of it well. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is writing or speaking seven messages to seven churches. So seven churches in real time, real place. Jesus addressing his church, some of them he's commending, others of them he's finding fault and encouraging them to, to change direction. And the church in Laodicea is probably a, a, a really good example for you and for me. It says, unto the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. It says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and because uh, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. But notice what the heart of this is. He says, for, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. In other words, I'm blessed. 
in the wrong sense. I have all that I need. I, I like, got it all. And he says, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, what he says to them is, your sense of who you are and reality are not the same. As a people, right? So the people of Laodicea not recognize, like they, they, they are walking in their own strength, their own provision, their own giftedness, their own goodness, their own riches, their own prosperity, saying, we have all that we need. We don't lack anything in and of ourselves. And he says, the reality is, you don't see yourself as I see you. You're a people in desperate need, and yet you think you're okay. And the amazing thing off of this then is right after that, he, he gives them provision. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and, to, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So, so right off that, if you just left it without going into verse 18, you go, man, they just got smacked and then left with no answers. You think you're rich? Dummy, done. But instead he says, you need real riches. You need stuff that you can't produce that only comes from me. So they're, they're, and we'll circle back around to this idea in a minute. He says, but so the, the, what they say, they say, I'm rich, I'm prosperous, I don't need anything. And the reality, from Jesus' perspective, they're wretched, they're pitiable, they're poor, they're blind, and they're naked. It's kind of a, in, a, in, a, in maybe in our culture, the story that we would recognize is the emperor's new clothes. Like, how great my new clothes are. And everybody's like, yeah, your new clothes are awesome. And it's like one kid's like, you're naked. If you've never heard that one, you can go teach your kids later. It'd be great. But the functional realization that we are spiritually dependent. And not just the, the, real, the reality, but the, then the, 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 the response. Right? He says to, to those who repent, he says, so be zealous and repent. Turn. Actively turn. And so just two quick, two quick thoughts on, on being poor in spirit. So the first one is that being poor in spirit is a spiritual requirement for salvation. Being spiritually poor is a, is a spiritual requirement for salvation. And I, and, and I realize what I just said. I just said without being poor in spirit, you cannot be saved. There's a spiritual requirement. It is like something that God requires of his people in the process of them experiencing grace. They have to be poor in spirit. Romans 3, 10 through 12 tells us that we are. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. It's quoting Psalm 14. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless no one does good, not even one. Now, that's pretty all-encompassing, and it includes all people everywhere. 
But that doesn't mean that because everyone is destitute spiritually that all will be in the kingdom. But, it, but, but being poor in spirit is a spiritual requirement for salvation. In order to be poor in spirit, think about this. In, in order to be poor in spirit, you have to come to the end of yourself and realize that you do not have what is required of you. In order to be poor in spirit, you have to know that you are unable to overcome the spiritual deficits that keep you away from or separated from a holy God. You have to understand that. And apart from that, there's like, and so if you don't come to the end of yourself and you don't realize that you are spiritually inadequate, why would you look for a Savior? You wouldn't, because you're fine. I'm good. They also have to know that if they, if, they, if they receive grace, they have to know that what they have been given is given as a gift. It has come as a gift and not because of what they have to offer. And you think about the parallel between this, so physical poverty and spiritual poverty. Let me ask you the question, what would it take for you financially to get to the point where you were begging other people for what you need? You would have to have a sense that where you are, apart from help, is not okay. That you are in desperate need of somebody else's provision. Right? Like, you wouldn't, I'm assuming, maybe, you wouldn't beg if you didn't have to. Most of us would say, before I would beg, you would have a laundry list of things. Let me, let me encourage you. Like, hey, good work ethic. Great. Pro provide. Yes. However, when we take that same mentality towards the Lord and say, before I ask for forgiveness, I will do all of these things, you'll miss the kingdom. You know, before I would ask for help, before I would beg the Lord to help me, I would do anything and everything else, you will miss the kingdom. Because you're not poor in spirit if you're not willing to prevail upon the one who has provision. So the spiritual, what, what is it? It's recognizing that I don't have it. I don't have the ability. I cannot measure up. I cannot do it. Like, regardless of how hard I try, I cannot eliminate the gap between a holy God and myself. Recognizing that the only way to bridge that gap is through repentance and faith, trusting what He has done, Him giving me His righteousness, clothing in that doesn't belong to us, Him giving us His righteousness, Him giving us His forgiveness, Him giving us His love. Him giving us His peace. Him giving us His hope. Him giving us His everything. That's like, if we have any good thing in Christ, it's because He has given it to us, not because we have done something to earn it. Right? And it is only the poor in spirit that experience that because they are the ones who have come to the end of themselves and have begged Him for His provision recognizing they don't have it in themselves. 
Jesus paints a picture of this in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He gives a parable to his disciples. Actually, he says he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So he tells this parable to people who think, I've got it figured out. I've done okay. God will find me acceptable because I have done the right thing more often than I have done the wrong thing. So they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So they probably said, obviously I'm okay because I'm not doing what that person is doing. I'm okay because I'm, I, I, I may not be great, but I've not done what he's done. I've not done what she's done. I've not done what they've done. So I'm obviously better than them. And so he, he gives this parable to them. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, so a religious expert of the law, and the other a tax collector who would have been seen as a sinner and outside of the bounds of God's grace. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Being poor in spirit means not just, not just that he humbled himself, but he humbled himself in the right place before the Lord. And we, we may not be Pharisees in the sense of the Bible, but how often might we say, Lord, I'm so thankful of, that you've allowed me to do this and to do this and to do this and to do this that I've served. Like, and I've given you this and I've given you this and, I, and I'm at church whenever the doors are open. And I, and I give the right percentage of whatever you give me. And I say the right words and I even sometimes I, I pray in front of other people so I do all of these things. And that's, the, that's my hope that I would be okay with him. He says, no. Trusting in yourself. And it's a subtle little thing that we would do so. But being poor in spirit is the opposite of pride that sees value in myself. Now, I want to be careful here and say this is not going around singing uh, Go Eat Worms. You guys know that song? Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Yes, I'll go eat worms. Big ones, fat ones, slimy ones, slurpy ones. Right? Like, you know that song? Like, just, oh, woe is me. Like, I'm the worst person in the world. Like, but it is, so it, 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 which again is like a false humility, right? Of like going around and just like, see how, see how hopeless I am? Like, it's not that. Because the poor in spirit find their hope, but they find it in the Lord. So it's, it's not relying on what I do, but it is relying completely on the gift of grace. Because that's the only thing I have. So it's, so the first part is being poor in spirit is a spiritual requirement for salvation. But the second part, equally important, is being poor in spirit is necessary for an ongoing life in Christ. It's not a one-time entrance thing. Where, well, I was poor in spirit, so I was saved, and now I can be prideful. No. Because being poor in spirit continues in a place of faithful dependence, recognizing that still every good thing that I bring to the table is a good gift of God. 
All of my hope continues to rest in his work, his provision, not my own. And we can get lulled into thinking ever so subtly that it's about who you are and what you bring to the table. Rather than continuing in desperate dependence on God's ongoing provision. So really simple, simple question, diagnostic for your heart is if you were to hear somebody say, you must be poor in spirit, is there something inside of you that's offended by that? Am I offended that someone would tell me to be poor in spirit? Does it bother me that I would have to humble myself and ask for something from anyone, let alone the God of the universe? If that bothers me, there's a little red flag blowing in the wind of your heart that says, It's not poor in spirit. On the flip side, can you rejoice or do you rejoice that your Father in heaven is rich toward those who seek Him? That your spiritual poverty means that you are a perfect candidate for God's divine grace poured out in Jesus. It's not enough just to come to the end of ourselves and go, Spiritually, I'm inadequate. That's a great starting point. But if it doesn't lead us to repentance and faith and trusting the one who has all provision, we still haven't come all the way poor in spirit. I'll just leave you with it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven.